Equity Mind. I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is useful. Welcome to another episode of Equity Mates, a podcast that follows our journey of investing. We break down the world of investing from beginning to dividend so that you can hopefully make some returns. My name is Bryce, and as always, I'm joined by my equity buddy, Ren. How's it going, bro? I'm very good, Bryce. Very excited for this episode. We've got two guests, yes. which might be breaking new ground for us. It could be an equity mates first. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't think we've done this before and uh, very much looking forward to it. It is because we are joined on the phone by uh, David Prescott and Jack Trengrove from Lanyon. Boys, welcome. Thanks for having us, guys. Thanks a lot, guys. Just a bit of background. David is the founder and managing director of Lanyon. He has uh, over 18 years funds management experience working for firms in Australia and the UK. He's previously head of equities at institutional fund manager CP2, formerly known as Capital Partners. David's got an economics degree from the University of Adelaide, a graduate diploma in applied finance and from an investment from the Securities Institute of Australia and is a CFA charter holder. So a lot of experience there. And in terms of Jack, you may have heard of Jack through the AFL system. He was a professional AFL player for both Port Adelaide and Melbourne and is now an equities analyst at Lanyon and has been there since uh, early 2018. So David, Jack, welcome to the show. We're very much looking forward to speaking about what's going on at Lanyon and all things markets. So let's get stuck in. Great. Thanks for having us. Before we get stuck into your backgrounds and your investing philosophy, we do like to start with a bit of a game. We call it overrated or underrated, where we throw out some themes, some topics that we may not otherwise get to speak about and get your thoughts on whether they're overrated or underrated at the moment. So David, we'll start with you. Overrated or underrated, the ASX 200 index? Currently, I'd say the ASX 200 is overrated. We're trading on extraordinarily high PE multiples. I think the industrial PE multiple is about 27 times at the moment. I think that's pretty close to the highest on record. We probably all agree economic conditions are far from buoyant so and growth is being very highly valued so i'd have to say unfortunately asx 200 is uh, overrated so then jack moving overseas if we go the nasdaq 100 overrated or underrated yeah i think i'm going to have to go similar to dave here on the overrated side of things for similar reasons as well i think we're just seeing a you know a huge dislocation between sort of value and I guess the underlying earnings in so many different companies overseas and yeah I think it's uh, unfortunate we're struggling to find some value over there and definitely overrated. In both your answers you guys have tipped your hats in terms of your investing strategy. You, You guys are very value focused which we're excited to get into because as you've noted markets are frothy at this point but before we do I do want to ask about another asset class which is arguably also quite frothy. David, overrated or underrated Australian residential property? I'll probably say underrated, actually. I don't have a strong view about the short-term direction of the housing market, but if rates stay low and unemployment doesn't skyrocket, housing will probably do fine. Philosophically, though, I think aspiring to own your own house has some uh, pretty strong societal benefits, so I'll say underrated. Nice. Another asset class, Jack, that is not in the equities stream, but um, has been copping a lot of attention lately or has throughout history, I guess. Overrated or underrated gold? 
Yeah, I think considering our, I guess, opinions on the ASX 200 and NASDAQ 100, I'm going to say gold is underrated. We here at Lanyon are very long gold and have been for a while now, which has been, I guess, beneficial to us of more recent times. And we've obviously seen the gold price go up and then probably pull back a little bit more recently. So definitely, I think just the longer outlook and the underlying value of gold certainly underrated at this stage. Nice one. And then to close it out, one asset class that gets a lot of attention and uh, stirs up a lot of controversy. David, overrated or underrated Bitcoin? This is a tough one. We don't pay a lot of attention to Bitcoin, but I'd say, but I would say it's overrated. It appears to us that given its immense volatility, it really is a terrible means of exchange and a terrible store of value, which I'd say are both pretty important if you're supposed currency. So I would say Bitcoin's overrated. Yeah, fair enough. Now, we like to start these interviews, you know, getting to know you guys personally and uh, hearing about your investing journeys. And we like to start with people's first investments. We generally find there's a good story that comes out of it or maybe a few lessons that come out of it as well. So I want to hear from both of you the stories of your first investments. Jack, maybe we can start with you. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I guess throughout my studies is when I sort of started taking more notice in the markets. And the first company that I officially bought stock in was, I'm not sure if you've heard of it, Catapult. Yep. And yeah. they, uh, I guess the reason for that, and there's no more reason for, more to the fact that it's a technology sort of piece of a product or equipment that um, athletes wear on their bodies that tracks sort of the GPS and the data goes straight through to sort of the, the fitness guys and the coaches and whatnot and you literally, you can't hide anywhere because it's tracking you at every step, how fast you're going, where you're moving and everything like that and I guess from my time within AFL footy, I just saw every AFL club had them and we're using them every day of the week and I saw them across many different codes as well. So there wasn't much of a thesis behind why I bought it, but more so the fact of the popularity, and I thought it was just going to keep growing. And I think I did get it at about a dollar, you know, going back a few years, and it did rise to four. Little did I know that it wasn't profitable at all throughout this time. It still isn't <laughs> profitable today. So I certainly wouldn't be going back and buying it uh, at the moment or I've had my time again. But yeah, an interesting learning, that's for sure. Yeah, nice. It's an interesting company. We recently did an episode with Andrew Page who actually gave us a thesis for investing in Catapult. So he obviously thinks profitability is ahead. But I like that you invested in you know, a product that, or a company that you knew and a product that you used. It's very much in that... Peter Lynch style of investing in what you know. So David, if we turn to you and we ask you the same question, can you tell us the story of your first investment? I'm going to let you down here. I, I invested in two companies I knew very little about, actually. So my first... Don't uh, worry, so do a lot of us. <laughs> <laughs> my first two investments were not long after I finished university in the late 90s. I invested in two floats or two IPOs. They were the 10 Network, which is Channel 10, obviously, of the free-to-air TV broadcaster, which is a pretty ordinary business. It was probably a much better business back then, but it turned out to be a pretty difficult industry. And also, that was the one of my first investments. The other one was the New South Wales TAB, again, through the initial, through the IPO process. Both of them were pretty good outcomes for me personally. I think more luck than any, well, definitely all luck and no skill. But after that, I was somewhat hooked and that was the start of kind of my investing career. Nice. Well, we're looking forward to unpacking a bit 
bit about your role at um, Lanyon. But before we do, Jack, we just want to close out the background piece with a bit about your journey through AFL and, and into the markets. And, you know, we've spoken to a number of sports people and it often is the case that, you know, you get into professional sports and then it's all about the housing and that sort of stuff. And very little is spoken about stocks. So we're interested to know if, you know, in the locker rooms with the boys, was there much chat about the stock market at all or was there a preferred asset class otherwise? Yeah, there's certainly plenty of talk about it. I think any any possibility to make money, uh, people, <laughs> competitive individuals like uh, a lot of athletes uh, want to have a, have a bit of a piece of it. But I think over my journey, I sort of found that um, a lot of athletes were certainly more comfortable with buying property. I think it's a bit more simple to understand. And obviously, you've got the tangible asset there of being able to touch and feel it and see it versus uh, the stock market where a lot of people, you know, just chose not to try to understand because I guess without sort of knowing things, it is um, quite difficult and quite hard to sort of navigate at different times. So mm. once people sort of got wind that I was working and I'm pretty passionate about the equities market, then every day I walked into the change rooms are after tips. But <laughs> <laughs> the thing that I disappointed them on most is that they were after sort of the, the diamond explorer in Botswana that was going to sort of ten bag <laughs> yeah. in a couple of days, which I certainly wasn't providing them with that and being sort of more your deep value side of things. They weren't interested in doing the time and waiting for your value to sort of be appreciated and um, uncovered. So certainly there's certainly similarities, sorry, between the two industries, both very competitive and you know, you're constantly getting judged against the market. And yeah, it's been an interesting transition from AFL footy into the sort of as funds management, but I've uh, thoroughly enjoyed it. Yeah, I just want to pick up on something you mentioned there around the deep value. And we do have a question around Lanyon's investment philosophy in a sec for Dave. But how did you, I guess, come to that investing philosophy when you first started out? Like, was it something that you had heard of and decided to go down that route? Or was it a process that you sort of tried the momentum growth and sort of landed on the deep value? Yeah, probably an element of both. I mean, you know, I was extremely fortunate to meet Dave a couple of years ago and while I was still playing footy, we had a day off every week where I was coming into Lanyon and uh, took up a desk and was just trying to immerse myself in in everything that the market has to offer and I guess what resonated with me most once meeting Dave was he's certainly more the, the deep value side and I think he always explains the sort of our investors and different people where the, the boring cardigan wearing guys that um, you know really go through and do our, our DD and every company and make sure that the underlying value exists there and I think it's only been confirmed the reason as to why I'm in this side of investing in more recent times with you know the buy now pay later and everything that's going in the sort of the tech side of things and it's all just I'm not going to say fake money but you know it's it's, <laughs> it's just it, it, you know going going to the moon really when at the end of the day there's no actual sort of deeper value underlying these companies which is you know you just sleep better at night knowing that you've got something there that you've sort of you know as investors we're investing in the company as though it is our own and um, you want to make sure there is something underlying that's sitting there, you know, in case a rainy day comes, which I sort of fear for these other sort of companies that don't have the, the same sort of asset base there. You know, in a downturn, what happens to those companies is, is a scary thought. So certainly sleep better at night knowing that we're more deep value and sort of capital preservation. That leads neatly onto the next question. 
Dave, can you tell us what you do at Lanyon, I guess, and, and in particular, what your investing approach or investing philosophy is at Lanyon? Probably talk about this with a degree of apprehension, given the fact value investing has been a horrible place to be. So, yeah, yeah. going to ask you about yeah, that. Yeah, we were going to ask At least. That. <laughs> in fact, I was reading this morning in the FT that uh, value investing has been condemned to, well, COVID's condemned value investing to to its worst run in, in two decades. So it's uh, we've had two decades of value stock underperforming. So yeah, I say this with a bit of trepidation and fear, but we are value investors, unashamedly. We what we try and do at Landing is we're obviously buying listed securities. We're looking to buy securities that are highly free cash flow generative when we can buy them at discounts to intrinsic value. So we're long only guys. We don't do any shorting and we're actively engaged. So we view ourselves as, as owners of stakes in companies and we, we do take our shareholding seriously. Our approach is, you know, it's not formulaic, it's not rigid and we look we look everywhere to find opportunities and, and to uncover value. So you mentioned there the two decades of uh, hardship that all value yeah. investors are, <laughs> are undergoing. Has COVID made you rethink any of your approach at all? I think we've, we're constantly rethinking our approach given the fact value investing has not been it, – it's certainly been easier, I think, to make money chasing high growth and, and momentum stocks over a significant period of time. So you're always you know, questioning – as an investor, unfortunately, you're always questioning yourself. But I think COVID, there's been a lot to think about, obviously. There's been a significant change in a short space of time, but our our core investing approach hasn't changed. We're thinking about a lot of things. We're thinking about which companies are going to be the winners from new ways of working and consuming and learning and providing healthcare. We think about digitisation. We're thinking about the enormous changes that we are seeing in the commercial property landscape, you know, what we're seeing with the potential partial reversal of globalisation, but we're not changing our investment approach. Dave, on that point around people saying, you know, value investing is dead, you know, similar, similar headlines to that. And I always ask this question with a grain of salt, given that this isn't the first time in history, you know, value has been put down and, you know, there's all those stories of Warren Buffett back in the day underperforming for a long period of time and then value mm. outperforming again. So I think, you know, if we take the long lens of history, value outperforms at times and growth outperforms at times. I guess the question is, though, what do you think the catalyst is or what do you think will change for value to sort of have its moment in the sun again and to start outperforming growth? Yeah, it's a really good question and there's not an e easy answer. I think everyone knows that the, the performance of the market's been driven predominantly by high growth and momentum stocks and, and even you could say concept stocks. And so it, it'd be easy to put your head in the sand and you know, kind of cry yourself to sleep as a value investor. But I think the reality is if you look hard enough and you search broad enough, there will always be pockets of opportunity. There's always going to be investment opportunities if you work hard enough. You know, there's a great book from Peter Kundal, a, a famous Canadian value investor. The title of the book is There's Always Something to Do. And that, that really underpins our view of markets. Yes, whilst markets might be focused on growth stocks and they might be the better performers, there is always opportunities if you if you do the work and, and work hard you'll you'll find investment opportunities. So I, I don't know specifically, I don't know what's going to be the circuit breaker here. You know, we know that the, the Fed continues to be the predominant driver of financial markets. And yeah, you know, if we see a change in 
the interest rate or inflationary environment, we could see a uh, enormous change in the way growth stocks are being priced. So that's not our central case, but that could be a, a massive inflection point in markets. So, Jack, how do you guys actually define value at Lanyon? Like, you know, I'm sure a lot of our audience think of it as beaten down companies that, you know, have been underperforming, but, you know, everyone has their own sort of view on value and we're just interested to know how you guys sort of define value. Yeah, I guess it is sort of forever changing in a way and I guess the old, you know, cigarette butt value sort of companies that have been beaten from left, right and centre, that's where you sort of can find some great opportunity but as Dave sort of alluded to we're sort of trying to find value in all sorts of different ways now and you know through a lot of research and a lot of deep thinking I think as I sort of alluded to the the value sort of comes from the the underlying intrinsic value of of the company itself which is what we're continually looking for but opportunities are presenting themselves every day at the moment purely from a company that sort of you know, on the nose a bit and that shareholders have sort of lost faith in and that we think we can buy sort of at a cheaper price and where it is sort of undervalued. So it's sort of hard to have a specific definition, I think, for what value is for us because we can find it in, in many different ways. But we go for the approach where it's against the grain a bit in the way that people are thinking about different companies and where we can find our advantage over other investors where we think we have a bit of an edge. And a lot of the time that comes from, you know, people actually disliking the companies that for whatever reason as to, you know, before we start buying. But generally it, it is a result of companies that have, yeah, on the nose, as I sort of said, or, you know, just out of favour for whatever reason. Hey, Equity Mates, we're going to pause here and hear a quick word from our sponsors. So, Dave, I think Jack's answer there is a really good segue into talking about Lanyon's investment process. And I think one of the things that Bryce and I most appreciate about doing this podcast and being able to speak to people like yourself is we get to get some insight into how the professionals invest and how they think about investing and in particular how they go about the process of discovering stocks and researching stocks and forming an investment thesis. So we would love to unpack some of that with yourself and Jack now. So I guess if you can take us to the beginning of your investment process, where does your investment process start? Yeah, it's a good question. One of the most important steps in our process is the idea and the spark of an idea is incredibly important. And ideas, we would say, can come from a wide variety of sources. So we uh, we quite deliberately don't have a an incredibly rigid or formulaic approach. We like to remain flexible. We, we like to remain opportunistic and we like to look broadly for opportunity. Now, that doesn't mean there's not some daily disciplines that we don't go through to make sure that we are giving ourselves the, or providing the best opportunity for ourselves to find mispriced stocks. So we do things like on a daily basis, we will routinely troll the 52-week low list. And this was a, a discipline that Ben Graham had. He used to do this every day of his career where he'd, he'd search the market for opportunity based on stocks that had hit the 52-week low list the day before. We're doing that as an investment team every day. We've obviously got quant filters where we're filtering the stock. Uh, we're filtering the market for stocks that may look mispriced. We review companies that are doing very well. We review companies that are doing very poorly. You know, if a company has hit a period of distress, you know, there's a fire in a factory or 
the chief executive has been hit by a bus or there's a class action, whatever that is, and the you know, company becomes front page news and there might be a wave of selling pressure in a particular stock, we will you know, we'll always investigate and start doing a little bit of work on a company. Now, if those ideas start to look interesting, that's, I suppose, where the real fun starts and we will do a significant amount of fundamental research that's both you know, building financial models, meeting with the management team, meeting with their customers and competitors and suppliers, directors, opening engagement with the board. So there's a, a very detailed and comprehensive process that follows that spark of an idea. If we pick it up from there, and Jack, I might ask you this one. I assume that the process at Lanyon is both qualitative, you know, speaking to management, understanding their people and culture and, you know, doing doing speaking to their suppliers and their competitors and stuff like that. And then also quantitative, looking at, you know, their figuring out intrinsic value and then also figuring out their earnings and projecting their earnings forward. Do you guys lean on one side of that, more qualitative or more quantitative, or do you do a bit of both? Can you sort of uh, talk us through how you do that company research process once you've found a potential stock idea? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, you know the critical part in all of this is we don't really lean either way, so to speak. We want to try to, try to taking every bit of, I guess, research we can possible to make sure we're making, you know, great investment decisions for the long term. And, you know, I feel like as analysts here at Lanyon, we're in a very privileged position where we do have the ability to sort of sit down with the CEO of a, you know, a large company here in Australia, or, you know, we can walk down the road and and have conversations with people in different industries and different competitors that a lot of investors don't have that ability to do. So from that point, it's, you know, as I said, we're in a very privileged whole situation to be able to take all that information in and then make decisions on the back of it. And I guess the key part also from a, you know, modelling and financial point of view we go back in the historicals of the company, try to figure out sort of how they've gone in the past and where they're going in the future, forecasting future cash flows and you know what's happening from a macro point of view, where are the trends heading, where's the opportunity for them to grow. We really want to see a long sign of continued growth over time for us to be sort of, I guess, hitching our wagon to the back of that company and um, letting them run as we sort of want them to. And I think one of the things that I've learned more so in, in more recent times and how important it is to back strong management, you know, it's a huge part of our decision processes. As I've sort of alluded to a few times, we're giving the company money and investing in that company as though we actually own the company. So we want to make sure the people at the top, you know, are running it right and, you know, are true to their word and, you know, have a great reputation and look after their shareholders because at the end of the day, that's where our money is going and that's how we're going to realise sort of profits into the future. So, you know, I think that's a lot to probably take in, but we don't sort of fall any specific way. We want to go out and be extremely thorough in the way that we analyse these companies because we're not only investing our own money, but you know, a lot of our investors and clients, their money as well. So I'll go back on that sleeping easy at night thing again, is that we want to be as knowledgeable and know all the ins and outs that's going on within the market and that company specifically so that we can make informed decisions for the long term and be confident doing so. Probably the most underrated 
part of an investing process is actually what you do after you've bought a stock. People sort of conceptually understand the research that you do to form a thesis and then then you hit buy or you you know you call your broker and you and you buy. But I'm interested to know what your process is in sort of managing your portfolio after that. How do you, you know, check the company is performing as you expected and, you know, test your original thesis? So Dave, maybe if you can tell us about what you do after you've bought a position in a stock. Yeah, it's a really good question. And I suppose that's where the real fun starts, right? Once you've you know, started your analysis, completed your investment thesis or your understanding and, and made a decision that you're going to make an investment in the company, that's where really things start to get a whole lot more serious. And so from that, once we have an investment in a company, I think our level of scrutiny, the depth of our research only accelerates. So we're not an investment firm that makes an investment in a company or does a bunch of research, makes an investment company in a company and then forgets about it for the next five years and hope things go well. We tend to stick very, very close. So we, we it's a process of continual reassessment of our investment thinking. We want to increase our understanding of the company. We want to understand that business as well as any other investor or analyst within Australia. That's kind of our ambition or a goal within the investment that we make. Quite often, we you know, through the passage of time, it doesn't matter what business or what industry that you're in, but typically your relationships deepen. So our relationship with the CEO or the CFO or other members of the executive team or even the board will strengthen and deepen. On occasion, our level of engagement with the company will increase. We might have a stronger view on shareholder value and how that can be created or enhanced. So we might make our views known with the company. We've got strong, strong views on our value as a shareholder can be enhanced. That's not all. We don't always do that, but we do that on occasion. And obviously, we are constantly reviewing various data points on whether or not that is you know, company-issued data from their you know, financial results or any other information they put out to the exchange. We'll constantly monitor what's happening with within the industry. We will constantly and continually talk to competitors and suppliers. So we just so our understanding of a, a business is enhanced and only grows through time. Saying that, we are wedded to this concept of intrinsic value, which we introduced earlier. So if we make an assessment that a company is worth $9 a share and we're lucky enough to be able to buy it at $5 a share, if the stock performs very well and it trades through our estimate of value, we are very deliberately wedded to that intrinsic value estimate and we'll, we'll look to get out of the business. And we, we quite often sell securities in companies that we think have a very prosperous or likely to have a very prosperous future, but have a trading at a level that ex- exceeds what we believe is fair value for the company. So David, speaking of intrinsic value, the underlying value of the company, you know, one of the I guess, key phrases or pieces of terminology that value investors use is the margin of safety. And I think on your website, you make mention that you look for a large margin of safety between the price and the underlying value, which you just spoke about. With rates so low now, what are you using as your your risk-free rate when when you're doing these valuations? And I guess more broadly, how are you actually thinking about this low rate environment? Well, this has been the key driver of financial markets, right? So if I think over the last, you know, over many years, you know, central banks led by the the US Federal Reserve can continue to be the predominant driver of financial markets. So by holding interest rates 
down. Uh, central banks have influenced investors' behaviour to bid up the prices of securities. And recently, that's been irrespective of you know, the economic backdrop. So we would say the Fed and other central banks around the world are distorting risk markets, arguably on a scale that we've never, ever seen before. Interest rates, as we know, are, are highly likely to be heading lower here in Australia. You know, possibly we're heading to, you know, 10 basis points in a week and a half time. So whilst it's entirely justifiable that the risk-free rate stays low, the non-consensus or contrarian view would say that inflation could rise, uh, given we've seen $10 trillion of fiscal support, and that's largely come through money printing and has been distributed to what we would call Main Street. So, And we've got a trade war with China, so there's you know, potential inflation risk from the geopolitical situation. So it's not impossible that inflation and interest rates go higher. Now, I'm not going to say whether or not that's our base estimate or not, but that's it's certainly not totally implausible. So to answer your question, we tread very cautiously here. Many investors, uh, both retail and uh, professional investors would you know would be increasing their their valuations for securities based on you know incredibly low risk free rates we're not ramping our valuations by incorporating multi decade lows for risk free rates so it's a really complex problem i don't think we've got this completely right as an investment organisation i mean the smart thing to have done yeah, eight or nine years ago was just buy securities aggressively because stocks yeah. <laughs> have pretty much only headed in one direction. But we're conscious of the fact that, you know, that it, it's not totally implausible that rates and well, inflation and rates head higher, which will have a yeah, detrimental effect on securities valuation. We'd love to unpack some individual securities here. We love hearing about some of the names that the experts we speak to are looking at or potentially holding. Now, we don't want you to give away any of, you know, herbs and, yeah, secret herbs and spices or anything like that. <laughs> um, but it would be great if, um, you know, you, you could share uh, maybe some companies that you're interested in at the moment or some that you are holding. So, Jack, maybe if we start with you, what's taking your interest at the moment? As we sort of mentioned at the start, we're um, you know here at Lanyon, we're we're pretty long gold, and one of one company that we've backed for a number of years now and it's done very well for us is Evolution Mining. It's got a market cap of about ten billion dollars, I think. Sort of a, a leading growth-focused Aussie gold miner. At the end of the day, it, they, I think they operate five wholly owned mines, uh, four here in Australia. There's one over in Canada. Last year, they produced about a little under 750 ounces of gold. They're one of the, the lowest cost gold producers. So you know, there's a lot of things sort of heading in the right direction for us. And we're certainly, we've hitched our wagon to the back of them for a number of years now. And I think Dave might be a bit embarrassed of me mentioning, but he's got a, um, a slight crush on their CEO, Jake Klein. Um, nice. <laughs> and, Love uh, a good CEO crush. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone needs one, right? Um, I think, and yeah, we view him and, you know, the management around him as being one of the best management groups in the country. So they released their quarterly this morning, I believe, and all things were heading in the right direction and positive. So we're confident to give our money to them because we know that they're going to do the right thing by us. And we've got a, a longer term view of gold and what that's doing. So yeah, that's one company that we've 
been invested in for a couple of years. And Dave, what about yourself? Obviously, other than, you know, Jack's just stolen your man crush, but um, <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and anything uh, that is particularly of interest to you? I've got a lot of man crushes, actually. That's, uh, <laughs> just, <laughs> that's just one of them. We like uh, another, there's yeah, quite a few other companies that are occupying our our thoughts and energy at the moment. We've been an investor in mineral resources, again, run by an incredibly capable CEO. So mineral resources is a a mining contractor, but also owns some iron ore mines. So incredibly well-performed company over an extraordinary amount of time. It's um, since it listed in 2006, it's delivered EPS growth of north of 15% per annum. It's return on invested capital is around 20%. Total shareholder returns been in excess of 25% compound over almost 15 years now. So we think that's an incredibly good Australian business. Uh, and yeah, that's been another company that we've still Jack's language that we've hitched our wagon to over recent years. We've been quite actively engaged with some, I suppose, reasonably public positions over the last little while. We bought a stake in a Hong Kong-based toll road, essentially an infrastructure investment company which we thought was extraordinarily undervalued which has been we received a takeover offer back in early september uh, we've also been buying yeah probably surprisingly to other institutional investors because this has been the domain of the retail investor we've been buying a basket of listed investment companies here in australia you know uh, companies that are run by very capable fund managers that are trading at, in some cases, 75 or 80 cents in the dollar where we see that there's a potential opportunity for them to be trading much closer to 100 cents in the dollar. So, yeah, we think that's an interesting space here in Australia as well. So no afterpay? <laughs> I wish I had. It's, uh, what's that, a 10-bagger in six I months? I know, I know. It's, it's ridiculous. Uh, ridiculous. It's, uh, it's frustrating. It's, <laughs> yeah. No, we're not, uh, we're not afterpay investors. <laughs> Fair call. I wouldn't. Uh, I wouldn't expect so, being the deep value guys that no, you are. No. But uh, <laughs> equity mates, we'll just take a, another quick break and hear from our sponsors. So, Dave and Jack, before we move on to our final three, we just wanted to touch on a couple of questions. I guess more about the broader market, and we we have heard sort of your thoughts on on some of these, but it'd be good just to hear a few more. Dave, how do you see the the next 12 months perhaps playing out both here and in the US from obviously a market point of view, given that we've obviously got the election coming up and a whole bunch of other stuff? Quite hard to get your head around sometimes. Yeah, look, it's a fascinating time to be an investor, right? There's lots going on and COVID just adds another dimension. Uh, the US federal election is you know, imminent and will have a, a bearing on markets. Look, we you know, we would say that US equities are expensive on almost all traditional metrics. They look expensive. You could make similar arguments for equities across most developed regions. So we, you know, typically when equities are expensive, you know, one of two things happens. Either, you know, they correct or you see strong growth in earnings to justify the valuation. We think the strong growth in earnings possibility is probably lower Um lower on the list of likely outcomes, whereas, you know, potential kind of cooling of equity markets is is more is more likely. So we're holding significant amounts of liquidity in all of our funds because whilst it's yeah, it's very difficult to, to call the uh, short term direction of markets, there is enough things there's enough 
elements that are causing us to worry. So we're treading reasonably cautiously. Now, I say that again with a degree of apprehension because picking the short-term direction of markets is frankly near impossible. And if, if anything, I think what we've learned recently is markets just go up. So, yeah, calling that that might not be the case in the near term is dangerous, but we don't aggressively have the spinnaker out at the moment. Well, Ren went into the crash in March so illiquid that he was selling his shoes to get some money to put into the stock market. Have you learned from that, Ren? Are yeah, you, yeah, are you yeah. liquid? I'm, I've got a little bit of liquidity. Good. The, the residuals from the shoe sales will last me a little while. <laughs> Good. Good to hear. Jack, maybe building on what David said there, obviously it's incredibly hard to pick the direction of the stock market in the short term, but... There are obviously some major sort of macro trends playing out. Bryce mentioned the US election. Dave mentioned the US-China trade war and the the incredible amount of money printing we've seen from the Fed. When you look at the macro environment, what are some of the key, I guess, trends or key events that you're paying particular attention to and you think will have a particularly you know profound impact, I guess, on markets? You know, Dave probably covered on off over most of it just before but you know you mentioned the US election the the trade war and whatnot I guess the thing that I've been looking at a lot and what we've probably I guess been shocked about since the start of COVID is all this stimulus that's been pumped into the economy and you know just keep printing cash and worry about the the consequences tomorrow sort of situation that's been unfolding everywhere and I guess we've been trying to sort of think deeply about what the economy looks like once this stimulus rolls off. And, you know, I, I think it's been made you know, pretty certain that we're just going to keep printing money until, you know, we get out of this and we're going to make sure that we don't go through a, an episode like the GFC, you know, over 10 years ago now. And so different sort of, I guess, forces that that, that will affect um, when the first set of stimulus came out, we were just shocked at the amount of money that was getting pumped into retail and sort of online gambling and, you know, that just sent sort of sales and revenue in companies within those industries so much higher than what we could have ever imagined. And, um, you know, once sort of JobKeeper and other sort of stimulus packages like that roll off, where does that leave us? And that's what we're sort of really trying to sort of figure out. And I guess that's the probably the concern and why we are sort of going forward with a fair bit of conservatism because, you know, it, it is really hard to sort of figure out what, what that might look like. And then not only to mention that, I guess, reopening the economies around the world. You see what Melbourne and Victoria have been through more recently and I know they're just starting to relax restrictions, but what sort of effect will that have on, you know, more travel happening and potentially people going out and maybe spending money, but, you know, do they have the money in their pockets anymore? All these sort of um, different sort of forces and catalysts that have been ongoing for the past six to nine months. And it's going to be really interesting. And I, I find it, you know, incredibly privileged to have gone through a pandemic such as this early on in my career. Mm. I, you know, I started only recently in, in funds management and, you know, taking up a full-time job in the equity markets. And there was always people before me talking about how they went through the GFC and back in my day sort of thing. And I started in the middle of a pandemic where um, it's doing extraordinary things to the market. So, 
Um, while I, I wouldn't wish upon anyone to go through it again, but it, it has been an incredible learning experience for, for me. And the next 12 to 24 months are going to be even more interesting again, I think. Yeah, I think the same would probably apply to the, a lot of our community as well. There, there were many of them who, you know, even made their very first investment in February, you know, and then saw half of their life savings <laughs> wiped yeah. out in March and then yeah. it ba- and bounced back in a matter of days. So it, um, it has been a pretty phenomenal experience to go through. So, um, yeah, just echoing those comments there. As Bryce mentioned, we do have a final three questions that we like to end the interview with and we'll ask both of you to answer them. But before we do, if people want to learn more about Lanyon or either of you personally, is there a particular place they should go, you know, website or social media or anything like that? We're not great on the socials, to be honest, uh, but we do have a website, which is uh, Lanyon AM, so Lanyon Asset Management, lanyonam.com, which has details on all of our funds and, and how we've been going over the last decade. Nice one. So we'll get into these final three questions and I'll ask it and then if you just want to answer it one by one. So Dave, if you want to answer first and then Jack. So we'll get started. The first one is, do you guys have any books that you consider must reads? And these can be investing or otherwise. Well, tragically, I pretty much only read investing books. (laughs) But I strongly encourage people that are interested in investing to read Safety by Seth Klarman, which is just a terrific investment book. Hard book to get your hands yeah. on. Expensive on Amazon. I think it's in the four figures to buy it. That's right. I think there is. Uh, Got to be careful what I say here. <laughs> yeah. if, you search, if you search far enough on the internet, I think, <laughs> yeah, 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 um, yeah. there's versions that pop up. So that's a book that I would certainly recommend. Obviously, all the Buffett letters. You know, they're obviously readily available and freely available. There's a phenomenal education in the, in in those letters. I also like the Capital Returns book, the book from Marathon Asset Management. That's you know just a, an excellent investment book as well. And Jack? And for me, yeah, um, I'll go down a similar path to Dave, but I think for people sort of starting out in their investing career, one book that I've sort of found incredibly insightful is the seventh edition of Valuation and by Collar, Goddard and Wessels. They sort of go through, you know, ways to, to measure and manage the value of companies and it sort of breaks it right down from the beginning of the process to the end and I think if you are interested in this space which if you're listening to this you probably are it's a great place to start in terms of um, trying to understand how you actually value companies and I guess the different forces within that I'll break trend a bit here and go away from investing (laughs) another favorite of mine that I read it's probably going over five or six years ago, but I'm a bit of a, a sports nuffy and I, I love every bit about it, about sport and the way that different athletes think and sort of the competitiveness that they sort of show in, in their careers. And um, the Andre Agassi book is a phenomenal read and just to hear about sort of where he started and where he got to and the various pressures that he sort of dealt with along the way. Yeah, it's just a great and very entertaining read. Nice one. Some great books there. The second question we like to ask is, what's your go-to source for investing and financial information? So we we obviously read broadly. Yeah, probably my preference, well, there's a number of things we read, but we do read, well, I read four newspapers a day, some local, some offshore, and we, we, we and that's, that's obviously not easy, but finding the time to do that we think is important to stay abreast of what's going on in the world. We obviously read academic journals, we read 
broker research. We read the investor letters of, of other investors we admire. You know, we talk about where ideas come from. They can come from all, all form, all sources. And so we feel like we give ourselves the best opportunity to find ideas if we're reading broadly. Yeah, I second that as well. Um, the AFR is on my desk every morning and I have a read through it just to update myself on all sorts of things and the FTs are a common read also but yeah as many resources as possible really to find different information and you know we, we speak about that the art to this game is really finding the edge over your competitors and the only way to find that edge is to read and get yourself more information so that's probably been one of my biggest learnings from getting into the industry is there's never enough time to read and consume and take in as much as you possibly can. That's a great thought worth echoing. The rumour is that Buffett reads 500 pages a day, so there's just <laughs> there's just that compounding effect of knowledge. The more you read, the more you understand, put can put together you know, a, a whole bunch of various different industries and form investing theses. Final question, and we want to thank you guys both for taking the time and uh, speaking to us today. It certainly is great to get your insight and we've definitely learned a lot. If you think back to early in your investing journeys, so Jack, when you were buying Catapult and David, when you were subscribing to the Channel 10 IPO, what advice would you give your younger selves? Look, I've made a mountain of mistakes over um, 20 years doing this, but I think the early mistakes that I've made probably centred on two things. One, relying too heavily on the opinions of others. So that's probably a, a big mistake and something that I would encourage myself not to do if I was 20 years younger again. And the second thing is you know, investing in businesses that look optically cheap have some significant or substantial structural challenges um, and hoping for improved outcomes. They've been mistakes that I've made and I'd probably encourage myself to think a little bit differently if I could. Yeah, the, I guess the thing if I could sort of give myself advice of, you know, eight to ten years ago, I think it'd be as simple as, as starting younger. I think the best learning really comes from jumping in and immersing yourself in a sort of all of the ins and outs that come with the market. And, you know, Dave just mentioned it then. Some of the, the greatest learnings he got was from the fails and the, the poor decisions that he made. So obviously don't go all in with uh, everything you've got early days. But I think just um, immersing yourself in everything that comes with sort of the equities market, whether it comes from, you know, reading company announcements, understanding different industry and macro forces and environments and just taking it all in and reading as much as possible and then investing your own hard-earned money into that because that really teaches you the lesson of, you know, being, I guess, careful and smart in the decisions that you're making going forward because, you know, it is, it's, it's the money going up and down day by day and your long-term investment decisions that can really make a difference and I think the other thing that I sort of learnt also is the fact that, you know, start early and you can really see the benefits of compounding interest. I guess do their thing and over a longer period of time, you can be in the market and sort of navigate through the, the ups and downs that come in short term and understand where you're trying to get to in the long term, then um, the earlier you start, the better you are. Nice. Well, Dave and Jack, it's been uh, awesome having you both on the show today. Very much appreciate you giving your time to, to come and share what you're doing at Lanyon with the Equity Mates community. So um, Ren and I certainly got a lot out of that interview and I'm, and I'm sure our Equity Mates community will as well. So thank you very much. We'll um, 
look forward to keeping tabs on on how you guys are going and getting you back on at some point to, I guess, discuss if value investing is yeah, ever going to yeah, come yeah. back. When, when value makes <laughs> its move, we'll, get, we'll have you back on. You can crawl about it. Right. <laughs> but thank Hopefully you very much. sooner rather than later. Yeah. <laughs> but thank you very much, guys. Uh, thank much you appreciated. so much, guys. Appreciate Thank the opportunity. God. Cheers. Thanks, guys. Bye. Thanks for listening to Equitymates Investing Podcast, a production of Equitymates Media. Please remember that everything you hear in Equitymates Investing Podcast is general advice only. The content has been prepared without knowing your personal objectives, specific financial circumstances, or goals. The host of Equitymates Investing Podcast may maintain positions in the companies discussed. Before considering any investment, please read the product disclosure statement and consider speaking to a licensed financial professional. 